Hello all and welcome yet to another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast where it is our job to talk about or at least interview people on different high yield orthopedic topics and try to get you guys well versed in whatever the topic of the day is. And today, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, let me introduce myself. My name is Dr. Wendell Cole. Some people know me as Cody. I am one of the co-hosts to this podcast along with my other co-host, Dr. Jay Fitz. And today we have a great episode. We're talking about traction in the lower extremity. Now, some programs use skeletal traction, some programs don't. But nonetheless, we're here today to talk about it. And I'll let Dr. Fitz kind of take us take us home. Yeah, absolutely. I think this is a pretty good talk on, like we said, on lower extremity traction, which is something you're going to be dealing with quite a bit if you're involved in orthopedic. There's a lot of trauma that's uh that's pretty high yield for the lower extremity and we just kind of go over some of the basics that you should know when it comes to uh different traction techniques so uh, for this talk we have dr nawachuku uh who is a orthopedic trauma surgeon uh, he did his residency at the new york medical college uh, he did his fellowship in orthopedic trauma at temple university hospital and uh, he came in and did a, a great talk for us on this lower extremity traction. So uh, I'm not going to hold you guys up too much. I hope that medical students, juniors uh, in their you know program, orthopedic programs, enjoy this talk. And we're going to get going. Here we go, guys. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring doctors Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. Okay. All right. Today we have Dr. Wachuku. I would like to welcome you to the Nailed It podcast. Thank you so much for coming, sir. Hey, I appreciate you guys having me. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, we're going to go ahead and get started on this show today. Uh, like always, we start off with just some questions just to kind of get to know you a little bit better. And uh, we know you are a, are a uh, trauma, uh, traumatologist pretty much. So uh, the question is actually kind of two-sided. We wanted to ask, why did you choose trauma? And uh, can you also just kind of speak on, like, your your schedule somewhat? Because I know some people uh, tend to think that if you go into trauma, you're going to always be really busy. You're going to always uh, take a lot of call. Uh, so if you can just kind of let us know your thoughts on that. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay. Well, you know, again, I orthopedic traumatologist for the most part, but I also, you know, do, you know, joints and things of that nature. But the reason why I went into orthopedics trauma is because I was always interested in inter interesting uh, international orthopedics, you know, being able to kind of go back to uh, West Africa somehow, some way, and just, you know, being able to be part of the growth of orthopedics in those areas. And I knew if I, do, I did trauma, you know, because you get to work in different body parts, you know, I have, you know, the hands to basically be able to not only teach, but also to help when I'm over there as far as like, you know, furthering orthopedic care. And trauma is one of the major things in orthopedic and one of the major uh, causes of mortality in the West Africa. So I figured like, you know what, that's one thing that would allow me to be a better teacher out there. So that's why I really went into trauma. But for the second part of your question, um, again, I love my schedule. You know, I have a family, so the goal is once you wake up in the morning, you want to do great work, but, you know, we'll make sure you see the kids, you know, before they go to bed. So, 
You know, Absolutely. some days you don't get a chance to do it, but I'll be honest with you, even doing orthopedic trauma, you definitely have some days and some weekends spend with family. But, you know, there may be a weekend or so, a month where you just, you know, have a busy weekend and you may not see your family as often as you would like. But again, definitely a doable schedule. I don't like people shying away from orthopedic trauma thinking that they won't have a life. You definitely will have a life, you know? Yeah, I totally get it. I understand that. I, I know a couple other people and uh, well, I know a good amount of uh, trauma orthopedists as well. Sometimes they kind of, they, they say kind of similar things to what you just said. Um, the second question I have here is, you know, looking back at it, you know, from when you first started residency to kind of where you're at now, do you have any advice that you would, you know, give yourself for when you first started residency? Any, any, anything that you look back and say, man, I wish I would have knew that uh, a while ago. You know what? Oh, absolutely. Well, first and foremost, you know, I remember when one of my senior residents actually came up to me and I asked the same question. And they were like, you know what? Make sure that you treat every subspecialty that you rotate through in orthopedics as if that's what you want to go into. And you hear it and you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But everybody keeps telling you, don't do spine. Spine sucks or something like that, you know? Right. And you know what? It gets embedded in your head, you know? And, and you may tell yourself, you know, nah, I'm going to treat it like I want to go into it. But everybody's killed that dream already because everybody's telling you it sucks, it sucks. Listen, all honestly, the same advice goes on. I mean, you have to treat every subspecialty like that's the thing you want to go into. And don't listen to what anybody else says. I'm going to be biased towards trauma just because I feel like, hey, it's the best one. You know, that, that's how I see it. You know, uh, you get to do everything. You know, you, you're not the shoulder guy. You're not the hand guy. Those guys are great and they're awesome at what they do. But you're not scared of those things. You know, if you had to do it. Mm. Um, I don't tell my hand guy that, though. You know what I mean? I don't want to get any <laughs> extra call. You know, so be careful with that. Yeah. Yeah. And no, I think that's great. I think that also, I think, you know, just having that mindset also makes, um, makes the rotation better. And, and you know, kind of, I think I would imagine it would enhance your experience as you go through the different rotations, too. Absolutely. You know, you got to challenge yourself. You know, and I think that's one thing I wish, you know, if I could do it again, I would have changed the fellowship that I would have went into, but I definitely would have said, you know what, I want to learn this as much as I can because I may not see it again, you know, and the repetition is the only way you can learn, you know, so listen, just make sure you treat every rotation as if it's the best one out there. Absolutely. I think that's some great advice to have. Okay, yeah. we and we like to do one question that's kind of outside of ortho, so for this one, we just want to know what are some of your interests uh, or some of your hobbies that you do outside of, you know, orthopedics? Oh, man. You know, i say this. Last couple of years, when you have kids, man, it's different. And the hobbies, you know, they take a back seat, you know. Um, Interest-wise, you know, again, I, I just, I love to travel. Uh, that's my thing. You know, the experience of it. I can go on a vacation and just sleep the whole time. You know, that's the truth. But being able to sleep in a different place, that's great. You know, that's an experience for me. You know, but all honestly, right now, travel is really probably the most thing. I still try to work out a little bit, but I'm doing the old man workout now. So it's a little <laughs> bit different, you know, but otherwise it's all right. But those, those two, I just, you know, being, I have a young family. So just being with them, 
that takes up most of my time. So I'm hoping within the next couple of years, I can get back to some of my other interests, but we'll leave that for now. Oh man, that's great. I love it. Yeah. Um, I love it, man. So let's, uh, let's switch gears and, and get into the topic of the day. So the topic of the day, we're going to be speaking about uh, lower extremity traction pins. And um, so we'd love to start off with kind of a case and then kind of proceed from there and get into like what, what traction is and, you know, when it's used, et cetera. Uh, so the, the case that we, that we have here, so we have a 65-year-old female uh, who comes in after a motor vehicle collision. She has a past medical history of like CHF and COPD. And um, so she sustained a mid-shaft femur fracture with significant shortening and she's complaining of spasms. And she also has, uh, you know, a subdural hematoma. Uh, so clearance will be an issue for this patient. So we check with our chief and our chief wants to, to put this patient in skeletal traction because we won't be able to get to the OR for at least another day. So for those that are listening that may not know exactly what skeletal traction is, what is skeletal traction and kind of like how do you use it? Like what are the different types of traction? Okay. Well, oh, I mean, that's a great question. Well, first and foremost, was it open or closed? Closed. Closed injury. So closed injury. Okay. All right. Perfect. I mean, again, you know, skeletal traction is one of those modalities that we utilize in orthopedics um, in order to help basically allow for a little bit of immobilization at the fracture site while also obtaining appropriate alignment, you know, of the soft tissues. Again, if you could do that, that can help with the patient's pain. And there are a couple of ways we could do that. Um, you can do it with a skin traction, which most people um, recognizes Buck's traction, uh, but you could also do skeletal traction where you utilize your uh, statement pins or KYs and things of that nature in order to, again, allow for pulling of the fracture in the uh, plane of the bone itself, uh, just to allow for, again, better stability at the fracture site. Now, for for skeletal traction, I guess we can, we can go into there. Yeah, I know you mentioned kind of um, Steinman pins. I know there are other options, like some, there's some uh, studies out there, people use K-wires, you know, like how is the, how is the setup of a traction, of a traction uh, pin? Like how is it set up and do you have a preference versus uh Steinman pin versus K-wires or tongs or anything? Right. Well, you know, when you have a distal femur fracture, again, there's some people, there's some, you know, surgeons that would, place the stomach pin or maybe they, you know, the uh, traction pin in the distal femur if they know that they're going to um, go to the operating room, you know, within a reasonable amount of time. Uh, but usually in somebody with a distal femur fracture, I would usually tend to do the proximal uh, tibial traction pin. And when I'm putting the traction pin, basically there's a couple of things that you want to worry about, where the injury, what nerves are going to be injured and which side you're coming from. Uh, so usually I go for the lateral aspect, um, staying away, you know, using the tibial tubercle as my landmark. Um, as far as what kind of, uh, if I use a Steinman pen threaded, if I use K-wires, I still sometimes use Steinman pens, I won't lie, but I've occasionally used some tension K-wires. And I think that it's very important to know that when you use the K-wires, you actually have to tension it so that it could actually work appropriately and not malfunction on you and actually have you have some other complications associated with that. Okay. And 
And on that, since we were, we're kind of talking about it already, I know you say that you usually like to go into the proximal tibia. Um, mm-hmm. I have two questions on that, actually. So um, okay. what are like some of the common areas used for traction pins? Maybe we could just kind of hit on that. And also, say when you, you, you happen to use the um, proximal tibia for, say, a femur fracture, because uh, I've seen people do it different ways, and there's different uh, research that, that's out there. Do you have any concern about uh, maybe ligamentous injury to the knee? When you I think that's knee? a great question. Oh. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that's the thing. When you are in the trauma bay and you're putting in a uh, traction pin, especially in the proximal tibia, first and foremost, you have to do a great exam. All right, and that's something that we didn't talk about before I even started talking about traction. I apologize for that, but yeah, you have to make sure that you do a thorough exam. Um, not only looking at the radiographs, but you know, do a physical exam. I don't want you manipulating the knee and cause the patient more pain, but if it's something that you see some sort of contusion in the knee area, you may be concerned of something like that. If you see swelling, things of that nature. So again, make sure you evaluate that first. If you don't have any intraarticular involvement, any fracture that's going to involve where you're going to put your pin in, then go ahead and put the proximal tibial pin. I do it from the lateral aspect just because I want to avoid the perineal nerves and I go through. Um, when I, I'd rather, again, use a Simon pin, I mean a KY if possible, just because I think it causes the patient less pain, less soft tissue um, injury when utilizing that method. Um, and I also tension it, you know, at least, 20 pounds, again, I know that it has to be 15, at least 15% of the patient's body mass. Um, but that's what I'm worried about on the proximal tip. But you also have to recognize also that the patient, you know, the anatomy you're worried about intraarticular involvement. So again, if you use a tibia tubercle and you go two centimeters distal and, um, distal and posterior, usually you'd be in a good position to involve, um, to disallow any kind of intraarticular involvement. Now, to finish off, I'm not to be long-winded, but with the distal schema, the thing about it is, I know a lot of people go through the medial aspect, um, but it's kind of difficult at times. So there's some other people who would actually suggest going for the lateral aspect and then exit medially. Okay, why, why would they kind of, what, what is the thing behind going from lateral to medial on the distal femur well if you have a big person let's say and you're trying to get a traction pin on the distal femur what do you have to do the other leg will probably inhibit what you're trying to do at least allow you to get a good trajectory correct you have to involve the other limb so I know there was a uh, there was a study recently that kind of looked at going from lateral to medial, and they showed that as long as you're you know kind of center center and you're exiting center center for the most part, the medial aspect you're not going to injure you know the structures in the adductor hiatus. So that's one you know the things that you kind of considered, and it kind of makes sense you know. But again, just know that there's a different option. You know, and the main thing that they kind of showed in that study is that the superior medial geniculate artery is probably the most prone to be injured, but not the 
several vessels. So again, it's a different option. I still do it from the medial aspect. I'm chicken, but just <laughs> to know that there's another way to do it, you know? Uh, I was just going to ask, because, uh, you know, when when you're taught this and, you know, everyone said you have to watch out for those the vessels, the femoral vessels usually is what you're kind of concerned for. Uh, have you ever seen or in your experience, have you ever seen anyone actually ever injure those vessels? And I mean, if, if all of a sudden you do nick the femoral, I don't know, the femoral artery some kind of way, right? Uh, I mean, what, what, how does that actually look actively in the trauma bay? Like, what are you doing? I guess, would, would there be like a huge hematoma all of a sudden that you, will start to develop or uh, kind of what would you look for in that, in that case? Well, the thing about it is, it's, again, I have, you know, thank God I've never been in that situation where, you know, I've punctured an artery. And I think, you know, one of the reasons why people really have that situation occur is that they go from the medial aspect and they want to make sure that they're not going to injure that vessel. So, again, that's why there's a low, you know, low rate of, of those kind of injuries. But in saying that, if you do have an arterial injury, because whenever you put a traction, whenever you put a, a Extrax pin in, a traction pin in, there's always bleeding afterwards. You notice it. And if it's something that basically you're gonna have expanding hematoma, and then you're gonna definitely see some blood evacuate through the hole um, that you made the path for for the skeletal traction pin or extrax, you definitely know it. It was more difficult and more challenging, of course, if you have an obese leg or obese thigh, then it'll be a little bit more challenging. But again, it's one of those things where you probably have to do a physical exam and if the nurse complains and says, hey, something is going on, then you just got to go check it out. But it is something that you just have to be wary of. Right. Now, now a question I had, because something that you mentioned briefly in the, when you were speaking is the amount of weight that you typically hang off the lower extremity. Uh, could you kind of just go over that one more time? Like what, how much weight do you typically put on? Uh, put it at the end of the traction pin and, and not at the end of the traction pin, but on the ropes. Right, right. You know, so again, when you when I'm doing skeletal traction, um, you can do like up to 15 pounds of the mass um, of the patient that you're dealing with. So Bucks traction, I usually do five pounds at most. I, I really avoid using Bucks traction, um, but if I do it's five pounds, but Usually, when I'm doing skeletal traction, I've gotten as high as 35 pounds. Um, again, but it depends on the leg. I've gone, you know, I've seen patients who've had 50 pounds, but again, 15% is usually the limit that we try to utilize. 10 to 15% of their body weight, is that right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, also, again, in this situation, that's when you have to just be uh, wary of the bone quality, one. And if you're using a you know, a standard pin, make sure that, I mean, a KY, make sure that attention. Very important. Again, you don't want any kind of cutout, especially in osteoporotic bone. So the amount of weight that you're using, you know, you should kind of just temper it to the kind of bone stock that you're dealing with also. Right. And you can also gauge how much weight you're going to put on if you haven't gotten to the limit by getting some sort of radiographic imaging. Okay. Now, what are the indications to put in to use a uh, skeletal traction in the lower extremity? Okay. Um, good question. I mean, one patient who is unstable, 
and had some sort of pelvic injury where there's some vertical shear. Um, somebody has a, a hip dislocation, intraarticular uh, body. Um, patient has a irreducible hip for some reason, and I, I don't know why you couldn't go to a wall right away, but something is going on and you can't get it in um, while you're in the ER. Listen, if you can pull some, put some traction pin on, that will probably help a little bit. If a patient has an open uh, open injury, usually you want to fix that. But again, for traction, femoral shaft fracture, uh, distal femur fracture. For intraarctic, for peritrochnitic fractures, usually I do not uh, utilize uh, traction for those patients. Um, mm-hmm. But proximal third, I would. Okay. Proximal third, yeah. So proximal third, not so much, but in a no proximal third, you will, but in a trope, you wouldn't because that would actually probably further displace the fracture. It seemed like I think, right? Yeah, but you know, whenever you have something which is in the intraarticular region, you know, usually these patients like to be in a flexed, you know, short externally rotated um, position, and that's usually when the capsule is at its largest. You know, so I think keeping patients in the position of comfort hasn't been shown to be worse than patient being in traction. Um, so I think, you know, just kind of letting patients lie in the comfortable position, it'll suffice. Because yeah, I think I, I read somewhere, you know, regarding that and, in, in, uh, you know, those proximal or femur intertrochanteric fractures that the traction may, may sometimes actually like decrease the blood flow to the retinacular vessels that supply the femoral head. Uh, I guess that's kind of just so in line with what you're saying, which we may kind of stretch the capsule. Um, right. So I think, yeah. Right, exactly. So with these hip fractures, uh, and I know we'll study, this is a study I think that came out like, yeah, this is from China or something like that, I believe. But yeah, exactly, you're right, man. Um, mm-hmm. And usually, for, I usually for those um, peritrochs, again, I just, I don't think in my hands that it's worth putting a patient through the torture of, you know, getting a traction pin. Right. Now, now for patients that have like uh, that have, say, acetabular fracture and they have like in- incarcerated intraarticular fragments, do you are these uh, yeah. patients where you where you would put an attraction pin? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I definitely will put those in the traction pin just because you want to you can alleviate some of the pressure that you're going to be applying to the cartilage. Again, that's the main reason why we actually the indication to again operate on these injuries. You can have a a uh, posterior wall fracture that you may not be able to treat for five, six days. But if there's something in the intraarticular region, again, you want to decrease the chance of post-traumatic arthritic changes um, further down the line. So as soon as you can get to that, hopefully you can help the chance of that of not being the case earlier on. Um, but when it comes to those in which, you know, the quadrilateral plate has um, been disrupted and is medialized, you know, at times I've seen, you know, traction pins being placed for those too. Um, in my hands at times, I may not even do it uh, just because I don't know how much of a benefit that really um, has. But that is something that, you know, at times people place traction pins for also. Right. So in, in, in what situations where you would, where would you do a proximal tibia traction pin over a distal femoral traction pin? Or what kind of, what's the injury? Like, so 
I, I guess in, in patients that have like, for example, like really bad, um, uh, like a really commutative tibial plateau fracture, uh, is that kind of indication to go with a distal femur versus a, a proximal tibial? Well, if somebody has a proximal tibial fracture, I, I, I truthfully wouldn't put them in a traction pin in my hands if I can avoid it. I, I would rather place those patients in some sort of external fixator, if possible, or, you know, like a spanning X-fix. Um, but if I had to put a traction pin in those patients, then for this proximal tib, depending on where it is, you, you think about the distal tib or you think about a cow pin. Um, but again, usually proximal tibs, I wouldn't. For distal femurs, um, I'll use a proximal tibial pin. If somebody has uh, any kind of ligamentous injury or suspected, or if there's any kind of ventricular injury that I'm suspecting, then I probably will stay away from putting anything in the proximal tibia, just because that can cause further injury. Right. Okay. And so also, you know, also, could you go over your actual technique of placing uh, skeletal traction for these patients for, you know, the femur, proximal tibial calc, wherever it might be, uh, whether this mm -hmm. person is on the floor, because I have had to do that before, or in the trauma bay. And if that changes mm -hmm. at all, what kind of uh, lidocaine, do you use lidocaine or do you use, uh, you know, actual sedation or kind of how do you go about it? It depends. Um, if, I'm, if you're on the floor, um, then what happens is I still usually use lidocaine, but it's a little bit of a better controlled setting. If I'm in the ER, I can get a little sedation. But if not, I uh, usually use lidocaine, marcaine, um, just inject not only the soft tissues, but also in the periosteal region. Um, and this is talking about, well, this normally what I would do for any of them. Um, that's my technique. If I'm going for the lateral aspect, um, when I'm dealing with the proximal tip, I'll do the same thing. Soft tissue, um, inject the periosteum. Um, if I'm using a Steinman pen or a KY, usually depends on, you know, what's available at the time. Um, usually if it's a KY, I mean, KY, once I get to the four cortex and I go through, I'll actually tap it through so I don't have to, um, spend a, uh, use a uh, wire driver in order to drive it down anymore. And I think that kind of helps just kind of pierce the soft tissue instead of there being more soft tissue damage with the revolution of the KYs. Um, usually use a tensioning guide for the KYs. Um, same thing for the Steinman pin, but again, I'm not tensioning when I use the Steinman pin. Um, if I'm going the next day, if I know I'm going the next day, um, I may not do a whole... Um, traction setup. I may just have something that kind of pulls through the bed, but I think the traction setup is the best just because it kind of allows you to go through um, the alignment of the bone itself as far as like, and it's more comfortable for the patients also. Also, so when you say that you, you go through the, when you're coming out the, the second cortex, you say you tap through, so you kind of feel yeah. that, okay. Instead of drilling yeah. through it, you tap at that point. Exactly. Again, this is for just for the KY, is that? Okay, just for KY. Okay. Yeah, just for KY, yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm gonna have to use that one. I've I've never I never used that before, but also, mm. I, 
to me, you know, I've only done this a couple of times, but uh, patients tolerate this, you know, we can call it procedure, this procedure really well. Uh, I think the worst part is them hearing the drill a lot of the times or kind of explaining what you're about to do. <laughs> Absolutely. But Absolutely. they actually tolerate it like great and you'll be surprised uh, like sometimes if I am in the trauma bay I, I tend to sometimes use um, sedation uh, if it's available like readily available but it's really not necessary like on the floor I've actually done more on the floor than I have in a trauma bay I mean you give them some, right. some decent pain medication they, and they tolerate it really well absolutely absolutely and, and again I think it's just one of those things where you have to let the patient know what's going on first and foremost because I think just the initial consent of it all if possible and just being able to let the patient know you know what you know what's going on you know what you're doing they're going to be fine and just kind of let them guide them through it i think they all tolerate it better than all of a sudden you say you know what you're good and then you go ahead and you start drilling and all they're hearing is like you know drilling noises and like going through dry sheetrock you know so i mean i think it's just one of those things you got to be compassionate about it it actually does help yeah okay and also uh, from reading your article, uh, I also saw that you sometimes can use this, you know, same technique, skeletal traction for a cal- for the calcaneus. So, when would you do a, you know, shoot do skeletal traction through the calc? And I guess what kind of fractures are you trying to distract and different things like that? Right. Um, well, I've had to use a calc traction pin actually in a couple of situations. A uh, patient had a distal tip fracture, um, also had a femur fracture, um, I think it was femoral shaft fracture. Somebody like that, I'd do a calc pin. Again, it's not, you know, I don't know if it's necessarily going to get enough distraction because you're going through so many different joints, you know, right. so many forces. So, but in situations like that, you may do that initially. Um, but the cow pin, I'll be honest with you, is something that I, I rarely uh, utilize. But again, anything that involves a distal tip, you would use. If you have a, a fracture dislocation that involves the subtalar joint, I would probably avoid using uh, any kind of cow pin. Uh, just again, you have an intraarticular injury, subtalar joint, calc is right there. Uh, you know, you don't want to risk any kind of infection. So I would stay away from that. Um, stay away from any situation where you have any kind of calcaneal injury also. Uh, but for me, usually it's things that involve the um, distal tib region. Okay. Um, I actually, this this has been really good. I, I have one more question. It's just something that I, I tend to notice uh, from our patients that we use this on. Do you get a lot of complaints on... Uh, with these patients, not so much the traction itself. They're they're not uncomfortable, but a lot of times the patients, I've noticed that patients complain a lot about the, pretty much the incision, the incision where the, the pen went through. Even after the, you have surgery and different things like that, they complain about that, that particular wound, uh, just saying that it's painful. Do you get that a lot? You do. You do get that at times. Um, I have to say I probably get that more for the distal. Tip, for the proximal tibias um, than the thigh wounds themselves. Um, the reason, again, as far as any kind of correlation, I can't state that I have seen any correlation. Um, I think KYs, again, may be less caustic to the 
soft tissue, so they may fare better. But yeah, you do definitely get some people who complain. Um, but again, you know, there's also some other complications with pin sites. You know, I mean, even though rare, you know, you have places like where you get heterotopic ossification, you know, um, you can still, even though it's rare, you can get like things like septic arthritis. But to go to back to your question, yeah, some people get it, some people don't. And for me, it's usually the distal tibia, I mean, the proximal tibia um, pins that usually get those um, complaint with pain. Yeah, that's great. And you actually answered uh, part of the next question I was going to ask you. I was going to ask you about the complications associated with traction spins, um, but you kind of just mentioned some of them, like the infections. Um, and, you know, the, the I think you mentioned earlier some of the skin trauma around the pin sites. Growth plates also, you know, you guys got, you know, got to be very mindful of that, you know, especially in these um, pediatric and patients, you know. Yeah, I, I, I totally understand. And uh, I guess before we wrap up here, is there anything else you'd want to, you know, mention uh, regarding skeletal traction or skin traction to you know, any of the listeners uh, that are listening to this episode that are just kind of getting their introduction into skeletal traction? Oh, yeah, definitely. Well, well first and foremost, um, great question, guys. I, I've, it's been a great interview. I'm loving it. Um, guys doing great work. Um, but in, in saying that, I mean, I think skeletal traction is, I don't want it to be a lost art because I think it's still very necessary. Um, I think there are a lot of instances where we should be able to note that we'd be able to utilize, uh, you know, the things that we've learned and say, you know what, whatever situation you're in, I can put a traction pin in. I can stabilize this patient or this limb by putting this pin in. Not only that, you could also utilize that, you know, intraoperatively with aiding in like reduction, things of that nature. So I think it's not just meant to stabilize. It can help in the initial stages I mean, in the actual final stages of optimizing fixations and things of that nature. So again, I think make sure that you understand the landmarks, know the danger zones, um, pros and cons of going from medial to lateral and the distal femur, vice versa. Also, just kind of knowing knots, all right? Just knowing the different type of knots that you need to, you know, you know, utilize in order to hold the weight. That's very important to know, point blank. Understanding the hanging traction, understanding how much weight you can actually utilize um, in order to get appropriate um, traction at the practice site. And also, don't forget to get an x-ray. Um, it actually allows you to know if you need to put more weight on in order to, you know, achieve the goal that you're, you know, trying to obtain, which is, again, balance traction and also pain relief for the patient. Um, but otherwise, again, just keep on no noting what's necessary for a traction pin, what the indications are. Um, again, sometimes you may not be able to get to OR to get an X-fix on. That's a positive, that's a you know a great way for you to go ahead and use a traction pin. I'm sure most of your pen if you ask them, can I store a traction pin for this injury? They may not mind doing it. That's another way for you to kind of you know hone in your skills also. Right. Absolutely. Right. I think this was an awesome talk uh, on something that's, you know, very common in any uh, early orthopedic intern or someone interested in ortho or even further down the line. I mean, uh, because you, you run into this so often, traction is something we have to do quite often in orthopedics. So I think this was a great talk uh, on the, the details of, of that type of procedure. But before we go, Dr. Wachuku, we always like to give our uh, speakers 
a chance to give all of our listeners a way to contact them if they would like, if you have any kind of social media handles or email address or something like that for our listeners to reach back to you. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, so listen, so I got to get my, my, my Instagram game is terrible. My Twitter game is terrible. <laughs> no, I mean, I'm not going to lie to you, but, um, my uh, email address um, is long, but C H I N is Nancy E N is Nancy Y E period N is Nancy W A C H U K U at S L U H N dot O R G. Hope you guys got that. Oh, we got it down, man. We, we definitely got it down. Again, we really appreciate you coming on and speaking and uh, taking your time out to help uh, help us educate everybody else and, um, and and talk, man. Again, really, thank you a lot. Hey, guys, great show. Congratulations on the great work you guys are doing. And, hey, I hope to meet you guys sometime in the future. Thank you all for listening to yet another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. Uh, especially this episode where we talked about lower extremity traction. We hope you learned something. We hope it helped somewhat. Even if you learned one piece of information, that means our job was done. Now, do not forget to subscribe to the podcast. Please go and rate us in the iTunes store. And you can find the show notes at nailedortho.com. Until next time.